in my business of diplomacy, often the professional setting is a dinner party, uh, you know, especially in Lebanon. Uh, you know, I, I used to eat for my country. And so my first uh, proper encounter with your father uh, was over lunch. Your dad was on the kind of top, you know, four or five persons list for any new ambassador to go and see. Uh, and that was whether he was in government or out of it. Uh, and so I think he was the first of the key advisors from the March 14 side that I saw before going and doing the formal calls on Fuesenora and, and others. And uh, so I was invited in. Um, we had a, you know, a fantastic lunch. I, my, my first, my main sense of him really in that meeting was there was a sort of brisk efficiency to the conversation. I mean, he was fun, he had stories, but he was also, I think, signaling to me that he was a, a very experienced professional diplomat. He wasn't, you know, just one more warlord politician in Lebanon, that he'd been around the block. You know, he'd been at the IMF, he'd been in Washington, and he, he knew much more than I did about that world. And very subtly, you know, he, he was just making sure that I knew that. Uh, and that was part of the sort of professionalism of his approach. I also remember thinking, you know, most conversations, if I'm honest, that you have with different political leaders in Lebanon, you kind of come into it and there's not a sense that either side is really necessarily prepared. But I felt that he was running a machine that had briefed him for the meeting that he'd come prepared, that he had his three points that he wanted to get across to me. He'd done, he'd done his research, or he had people who'd done their research, his research for him. And that was really impressive to see. It's a different dynamic. It's quite hard to capture, um, but there's almost a, a change of tone, or there's almost a code that comes in when you're talking to a fellow diplomat. You feel you can go, you can jump past a lot of the small talk because you are in the same milieu, you know, that you're, that you're both professionals in that space. And I absolutely felt that. I also felt like I was meeting someone who probably spent a lot of time receiving ambassadors. And, you know, in that world, a lot of that is fairly tedious. And so he, I think the sort of, the, the efficiency of it was that he wanted to make me feel very welcome, very at home, that we would have a kind of camaraderie and a working relationship. But also, you know, he was there to work as well. He wasn't just inviting me in because people like to invite the French ambassador, the British ambassador, the American ambassador around to lunch and, and tell people that that happened. He was there to work. Sometimes in crisis, I would get called up by several leading politicians and they'd say, we need to meet, we need to meet. And I'd often get the sense it wasn't about, you know, my particular insights into the situation. It was about showing that the British ambassador was coming to call on them, you know, that they were the person who was at the center of the action. You know, when you're going through all these crises, you know, the president's gone or there's no government or there's a caretaker government, you know, there's that endless cycle of political crisis that, that the Lebanese are so good at organizing. Often I, I felt like I was a cameo. Then there's another set of meetings which is because people think you know more than you actually do as an ambassador. That assumption that 
the Brits or the Americans or the French or whoever it is have some sort of secret insight into what will happen next month. So people would say, tell me what's happening in this. What's your analysis of the situation? And I'd say, look, you tell me, I, you know, I've only been here six months. And they'd sort of feel that I must know something that I wasn't letting on, that I knew when the Syrians would invade next or when Hezbollah would uh, mount the next atrocity or what, what the Iranians or the Saudis would do next. That somehow I had this amazing intelligence on, on what was going on in Lebanon. And the ambassadors would say to themselves, you know, this is crazy. Like, we, we're as much in the dark as everyone else. But many of the meetings were about that, that sense that, you know, tell us what's really happening. And he wasn't like that. He wasn't like that at all. He was straight to the, straight to the business. And it felt more transactional and more professional. I, I want to be careful how to put this because it wasn't that somehow he, on behalf of March 14, was somehow steering the UK in a certain direction or that, you know, there was some complicity there. But he, as a consumer, kind of professional operator, I mean, why else would he see me? I, he, he saw it as his job to try to influence me yeah. and to try to influence the way that I saw the situation in Lebanon and therefore the way that I advised the British government in London on Lebanon. He... He, he wouldn't have thought it surprising that after the lunch, I would go back and write a report to London saying, I just had lunch with Mohammed Shabda and he, here's his analysis. So there's a thing that often professional diplomats do it where they're almost saying something for the telegraph. And he was a master at that. And he was a master at basically saying, this isn't for the telegraph. So what I'm about to tell you is off the record in the way that a journalist would act. There's a diplomatic code to that too. He'd be saying stuff that was meant to influence as well as inform and sometimes he would do that through sort of just general wise advice to a young inexperienced diplomat new to Lebanon you know the, the old cliche that if you think you understand Lebanon you haven't answered the question you know I was living that and sometimes you do it more forcefully and just say you know this is where you're getting it wrong and you you know you and London need to understand that that path is not going to work When there was a significant assassination, he was the first person I'd call, uh, the first person I'd message. Now that was partly because I wanted to check he was alive. And it was partly because he would be thinking around the next corner. He'd be thinking, how do we ensure this doesn't escalate? How do we ensure that more innocent people on all sides don't get sucked into this because we politicians can't control it? And we obviously had a shared interest in that, you know, as, as the UK ambassador, as, you know, as other ambassadors would, would have been doing, we'd have been very worried about escalation, about violence spilling over at moments of peril like that. And he was a master at, at saying, right, we need to get the following people in the room. You can do that. I can't do that. Or this person can do it. This person needs to talk to this person. Then they need to talk to that person. And then we go around this mad dance until we basically agree on how we'll move forward without this becoming a huge set of recriminations and spilling over. So that's one very practical thing he would do. And we would do that on text messages. We'd do it on the telephone. Uh, we'd sometimes do it face to face, but it was fast. He was a very fast moving. He'd react quickly in those situations. And, but he'd always say to me in those moments as well, He'd always point out the human cost. He, he was very worried about 
ambassadors going straight into management mode? You know, how do we how do we keep things stable? That was the argument. How do, how do we calm things down? And sometimes you'd say, look, people have got to be allowed to be angry about this. You know, we, our, our first reaction can't always be to calm everyone down. I, I think about this a bit, thinking about the current Gaza-Israel situation. You know, there, there has to be a space to let off the anger too. The other example I give, Ronnie, is like, is actually on something we disagreed on, and on which, with hindsight, he might tell me he was right. Uh, again, it's this this word stability. So, I would say that my number one objective in Lebanon over four years was to keep Lebanon stable. So stability was prioritized above reform. And I thought that through a lot. It wasn't just because British interests were in stability. It was because I was so worried about what would happen if the Syria conflict came across the border and what that would mean for ordinary Lebanese people, what it would mean for Israel Hezbollah to spill across the border for ordinary Lebanese people. So that became the sort of defining rubric through which I tried to organize our policy. Our internal slogan was backing stability. Everything was seen through that prism. And he used to take me to one side and say, what about backing reform? And I'd say, yeah, reform's important, reform's part of stability, but actually in this moment, we've just got to keep it stable. And he'd say, but you're just kicking the can down the road. You're just storing up these problems for another day. You think you're keeping it stable, but ultimately you're making it less stable because you're not doing more to back those who want reform. And I'd say, look, I'll go out back them, I'll blog on it, I'll do speeches and so on, but I'm not gonna push at this system, this fragile system in a way that might knock it over because I don't think we can control what comes next. And he'd be very thoughtful about in saying, sometimes that needs to happen. Sometimes you have to push at a system like this and see what happens and trust us to be able to put it back together again. This is something that actually the, the entire Lebanon experience, but he very much characterized it, taught me, is I think that the, the West, the liberal democracies of the West, and I've seen this in number 10, Downing Street and, and since, find it very difficult to think around the next corner. So we are increasingly in crisis management mode. It's slightly ironic because all of you guys in the Middle East think that we're at, you know, or maybe used to think that we're behind every kind of conspiracy and that we're moving pieces around the chessboard and that we're incredibly cunning and so on. In reality, the closer I got to power at the center of the UK, the more tactical it was. And I think if I was sat with your father now, he'd be saying, so do you not think that your four years in Lebanon were actually quite a tactical intervention? Which actually in the end, okay, you, you helped keep Lebanon stable, and that was a, you know, a contribution in itself. But ultimately, that was another four years of the status quo. It was another four years of uh, the same system running Lebanon. And so, you know, when you look back at the ledger, ten years on, what really changed, or did you really just help to freeze that system in place? Now, of course, you know, that predated me by 20, 25 years and it postdates me by another 10. But I, I did have that sense with him of, some, of someone who could zoom out and take that bigger, that wider lens on a situation. 
Uh, and that's a real skill when you're living through it. Whereas I would have been thinking, you know, how do I how do I cope till the end of next week? How do I ensure that we're not evacuating Brits on Saturday, that there aren't another million refugees coming across the border, that Islamic State don't blow up more buildings in cities in Lebanon, that Tripoli stays calm and so I, I was very tactical and he was more strategic. He and I were both very aware of the risks. It wasn't something we often talked about, to be honest. Um, and that was the same actually with, you know, the other names that you would expect to appear on that list. You know, the names that would be circulating, you know, the first people you texted, and it was text in those days, not WhatsApp, the first people you texted when there was an explosion, you know, when you saw her on Twitter, as I did in that case, that there'd been an explosion and you start to think, well, the first thing, the first instinct is to, is, is to check in with those people. And he and I had done that uh, in the past. There was one actually where uh, my convoy was hit. Um, it actually turned out to be a sort of random traffic accident, but for some reason it spread around very quickly that I'd been, you know, targeted. And he was, you know, just about the first person to check in then. Uh, and so I think he was able to both see himself in that role and assuming that risk and also see himself as one of those pieces on the chessboard and zoom out and understand the chessboard. And that's an amazing skill. Uh, but it's, it's very, very hard to do that uh, in that way. But I think he, I think he did. He was absolutely convinced of the of the cause. I mean, he was at absolutely no doubt what he what needed to emerge from this mess uh, in Lebanon and what was stopping that happening. He and I worked very closely on setting up the international contact group. The idea that how do we carve out a space for Lebanon from this regional chess set? How do we try and ensure at least we agree that Lebanon shouldn't go under while we're all playing our games all around the region. Um, but I think it comes back to that. He wanted to challenge us uh, and, 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 and he, he got a thrill out of it, a mischievous thrill out of telling us things we kind of knew but couldn't quite admit. I sort of knew he was right on that at the time. And yet I couldn't get myself away from the tactics because my horizon was four years and I was just thinking how do I kind of how do I stop Lebanon going under in those four years rather than thinking what's right for Lebanon over 40 years and so I think even in those moments I knew that he was pressing a bruise and he knew he was pressing a bruise because he knew that in another context if it hadn't been for the Syria civil war I'd have been much more outspoken about those reform issues you know he he could see that I was revving to do it and yet was having to hold it back and and that's where he won he took a sort of a kind of delight in 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 making sure I understood that. Uh and, and there was a mischief in that, but there was also, you know, he, it was a stretch goal. He was pushing me. As everyone tells you as an ambassador, you have huge influence. And actually, I think he knew. Uh it took me a bit longer to work this out. That ambassadors in Lebanon, we get lots of attention, we get lots of meetings but we actually don't have all that much influence in reality. So what he was good at was giving me 
things that I could deliver. And basically saying, okay, you know, as someone who could see the big chessboard, he, he could give me some of those tactical victories and say, well, why not try and pull this one off? And as an ambassador, that's really uh, empowering uh, because most, well, I was going to say most of us, some of us don't want to just be wandering around glad handing and shaking and just being nice to everyone and being, you know, people would say diplomatic. Some of us actually, you know, wanted to do stuff. Uh, and he managed to find a way to work with that while always being realistic. You know, that idea, don't think you can fix it. You know, don't overstate your influence as an ambassador. Uh, and, and that was really helpful. I'd love to go back and, and almost trace the, the evolution of his, his Twitter style because, because by the end he was using it in an incredibly intelligent sort of savvy way and finding the dividing lines and, and, and the time, it would always be interesting to look at the timing of when he was sending the tweets and so on. Cause I think he was often ahead of his party's line, if you see what I mean. I'm always curious about when diplomats and political advisors and so on can do that because that takes real courage. It's one thing to be tweeting the thing that your foreign minister has said, you know, an hour later and just slightly different words. It's another to be sort of out there ahead of the line and then to see the official line echoing that. And, and certainly he was doing that towards the end and that done, but early on, I mean, I remember sitting in a sushi restaurant with him and, and <laughs> having a bit of a debate about whether ambassadors should be doing this and whether it was all big, of a gimmick. Uh, and the risk, to me of people not taking me seriously because I was mucking around. I might be seen as mucking around on social media and not being a kind of heavyweight ambassador who never says anything in public. How would I describe him? Uh, wise, mischievous, strategic, problem solver, kind, And a nationalist and he'd blush at all of that i don't know whether he would push back at the nationalism bit of it because he wouldn't want to be thought of in that kind of classic nationalist sense and he was a globalist of course he was a globalist you know his jobs in washington and so on but the nationalist part of him was very strong that that real deep sense of what Lebanon could be and frustration that it wasn't that I think was one of the things that really motivated him you know I think that's one of the things from one of the, the reasons he drew such a sense of mission and purpose for his work as an ambassador the lazy way to report on Lebanon was just to always do it in terms of sectarianism you know to write your telegram saying the Sunni think this the Maronites think this the Shia think this the Druze are saying this, and you know, of course, there's something in that, but it was also a, a kind of complacent way to analyze things. And he didn't, he pushed back against that. And yet, he was also brilliant at understanding the perspective, even of his own sect, and being able to step away from that and talk objectively about what the different sects were looking for. And that was very, very rare. Um, you know, you, I'd say someone like Wally Jumblatt 
could would do the same thing in a, in a, in a very persuasive way. Uh, but your father would do that. It was as though he could take off. Um, he knew that he was also seeing the world through a filter and he could take that filter off and 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 talk about his own views and the views of his colleagues in the movement in a more objective way it's it's odd in a way because at one level he was so partisan he was so clear about what he wanted and was very good at the party discipline and so on but he was also able to talk honestly about the flaws of his own side in a way that not many people can that gap that he leaves in the Lebanese dialogue of someone who can step back and see both sides and think around the next corner. You know, I see that gap globally as well. Uh, that who knows what he'd be doing now, 10 years on. I suspect that it wouldn't just be the Lebanese campus. And the world really misses people who can do that. I feel the absence of people like that who can step away uh, and think more objectively, take off the filter, see around the next corner to mix all the metaphors. And so that's why I feel he's not just such a loss of Lebanon, but he's a loss to all of us.